This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars, premium race-back clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we're looking back to the final round of the Superbike World Championship. Top rack Razgadioglu claimed the, his first world championship and Gordo, we're a little bit late, but uh, it's taken us a little bit of time to get ourselves back. Oh, it did. I had to stay there on Monday to finish off a few things. I was finishing off motocourse and uh, the stuff I do for Bike Sport News and uh, various other publications and so on. Um, so I actually deliberately stayed back a day and travelled on the Tuesday, uh, which had its own benefits. I managed to get a cheap upgrade in one of the uh, one of the legs, which made a massive difference to how I got home. Um, but yeah, I mean, now we're going through the old jet lag kind of porridge, you know, all your days will get a slight fog in front of them. Um, but it's it's not so bad. Going down, that was the worst I've been. And maybe it's because it's the first long haul I've been to for a long time. But my jet lag in Lombok was dreadful. I mean, an hour, two hours a night sleeping, I was, it was dreadful. And somehow during the day, I was actually all right, you know. I mean, I, I've, been, I've been worse at other rounds over the years. So it was a weird one. It was definitely a weird one, Steve. I've always found that for me, I, I do exactly what you're not supposed to do when you're jet lagged. If I'm tired, I sleep. And whenever we landed in Jakarta, we had to do two two nights of hotel quarantine, three days, two nights. And uh, we arrived pretty early on the Monday morning. So went straight to the hotel and I pretty much went straight to bed. I slept for 15 hours straight and I'm usually four or five hours kip a night. So this was like, you know, days of sleep for me. And I was grand once we got to Lombok I was fine but coming back home I've really struggled this time and uh, yeah it's 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 a little bit different Gordon you know it's been a long time since we had flyaways obviously Argentina and Indonesia to finish the season next year we're going to have Argentina Indonesia and Phillip Island on the calendar as well looks like they're going to be the last three rounds of the year so we're definitely going to be back into flyaway zones next year yeah and I've heard that they're trying to do uh, the Lombok race and then Australia back to back which makes sense for everybody um, but I think it's quite logistically difficult to do partly because Lombok's on an island you have to get from there to to you're nowhere near the big international airport I don't know what the real reasons are for the that but that would be ideal to do so we do Argentina then a weekend off then we go to Indonesia and, and Australia which means the week after Australia you can go and do a bit of walkabout and, and uh, spend some time in Australia which is you know fantastic well, I'll be honest, Gordo, on the Sunday night, there was the end of the season party in Indonesia. It was down on the beach. You were obviously far too busy working away on deadlines. But us commentators, we've got an easy life, Gordo. So we were down on the beach. And I'll tell you what, I'd be more than happy for it to be Phillip Island up to Indonesia next year because this was this was, was great. Bar right down on the beach. The, a lot of the paddock down there as well. It was good fun. I never got to the beach, which was, I mean, what, a couple of decent golf strokes from the the edge of the track and I never got there at all I was I, I just didn't I was either too busy too tired or and I didn't have own transportation I had to rely on my little homestay hotel guy taking me everywhere um, you couldn't walk anywhere where I was it was literally up a, a jungle track quite amazing um, so yeah it was a funny race um, and I, I mean but the racing was amazing uh, even if you never got any of the fun in which you know I have to say I never got really um, it was still one of those weekends you're never going to forget Never. 
you know, what did you make of it actually, Gordo? Because obviously you were in St. Dool in the past as well, whenever the race was. So well, you never no, went, did you not? I was never quite. Uh, St. Dool, I finished 97 and I never went fully freelance till 99. And nobody was uh, foolish enough to send me before that, working for a magazine. So I never actually made St. Dool. Um, so this was my first time in Indonesia. Well, what did you think of it, Gordo? Because like, I've been to Indonesia once before. It was only one night whenever I was an engineer. I had to work in Jakarta and then flew out the next morning. But uh, I I was really impressed by the place. You know, the the food, the people, the facility was actually really good. Obviously, it was a last-minute job to get it all done, but the racetrack was good. I think everyone went there with a real open mind. <laughs> yes, I think uh, considering how many things could have gone wrong, very few things did go wrong. Um, the track layout is magnificent. It really is wonderful. Everybody raved about it. All the riders thought it was great. And you had that final little complex, which a lot of the world's great tracks have got the... You've got a, a oppor- passing opportunities right at the end of the, the lap, um, but otherwise big, fast flowing. Even the hairpins were quite wide. The tracks are a million miles wide, um, but the racing was great. The, the layout was great. The, the, I mean, it's not the most beautiful racetrack in the world. It's not some sculpted, uh, you know, palace, but it worked. It even managed to handle, relatively speaking, the unbelievable rains we had two days in a row. Um, Although obviously things have got cancelled, um, but I, I'm telling you, anywhere, anywhere would be underwater. It was madness. The the rain was quite impressive. I haven't seen rain like that for a long time. Um, I've been at races where they've had to stop because of rain, um, but yeah, they, you could argue they could have raced again on on Saturday, and it did actually turn out that way. But given the situation they were looking at, I do understand why they called it. Um, but they. Sh- you know, they did an inspection on Sunday and spoke to all the teams and riders and they should probably have done that on Saturday. But they didn't and we didn't race on Saturday. So we ended up with two races, not three. Yeah, because Gordo, when the racing did get underway on the Sunday, like we saw the rain and it was only when the safety car, they showed a full lap of the safety car going out and it was only at that stage that I thought, actually, do you know what? We could end up racing. And then everyone goes out and the track was given so much grip. Brand new asphalt. It was really similar to Sepang 2016. Everyone went out and just had so much grip right from the start. They were only about seven or eight seconds off a dry weather time by the end of the race. And we saw in the wet conditions, you know, Top Rack was still endowing into the heavy braking zones. He was still overtaking people on the brakes. We saw everyone able to get their knee down. You know, it was everything just looked like it was fantastic and speaking to the riders afterwards they all said the same thing they said they couldn't believe the amount of grip on offer but they'd also wonder whether after a year of baking hot sunshine in Indonesia whether they'd still have the same grip this time next year if it was similar I think what amazed them about the wet weather grip was how one line the track was in the first day or two in the dry if you wanted to overtake somebody and ventured off the developing the clean line um, sort of broken in line with all the rubber laid down you really were struggling and everybody said the same thing about it that's why I think when they finally got to actually race race and do all the proper overtakes it, it obviously stressing the tyres even more they were amazed, they, they couldn't believe it so there's obviously some kind of alchemy going on with the race surface there um, dry versus wet but didn't it deliver amazing races I mean how many passes did we see in the wet races as many, I mean many more than you would get in a lot of dry races and everybody seemed quite confident with it. No one was doing it in out of control. Um, it was brilliant. I mean, what a way to end the year. There's a lot of controversy about the racetrack and, and where it was put and everything else. But what we ended up with, um, when you when you just look at it from totally racing terms, was quite an amazing facility. 
uh, in terms of, and it all worked. You know, the broadband worked for everybody. Uh, you know, there was a few leaks because of the rain. You find these things out when you make any kind of new building project, um, where the weak points are, you know. Well, I'll be honest, Gordon, the air conditioning worked in the commentary box and that was my only concern. Anything beyond that was a bit of a bonus for me. But we're going to we're gonna move on to get to the big talking points of the weekend now, Gordo. And El Gordo, let's talk about El Turco because the king is dead and long live the king. Top rack Razgari Oglu. After six years of Jonathan Ray winning the World Championship, we have a new champion. And, you know, as much as everyone respects Ray and the success he's had and how well he rode this year, Top rack is a rider that captivates the imagination he's what everyone thinks uh, a motorcycle racer should be when they're out on track he's spectacular at all times he's always liable to launch an overtake and move he's fun off the track and he's got a good attitude and uh, he's a very deserving world champion and he's going to be a good ambassador for world SBK as well Yes, he is, which considering he's the shyest person in the world is actually quite an achievement. Um, he's had to learn to be an outgoing human being more than he was. Uh, he'd rather just go racing and go home to Turkey and, and spend time with his friends and family. He said that a million times and he means it. It's he's, he's absolutely true. However, um, he is a massive entertainer on the bike. He keeps everything on the bike and when he's got his leathers on. He's obviously got uh, marginal English. His, his, his communication within that is great. His personality really comes out, but his his English skills are not fantastic. All those things together, he has been taken to by people, and quite rightly so, off the bike as well as on the bike. Um, his character, his personality, there's been a lot of clever people behind maximising that for him as well. Um, so, you know, we live in a professional sports age, and it's been done incredibly well. But underneath it all, you've got this really nice kid, and he's a lovely guy. He's a really good guy, very polite, very nice, uh, quite very open when you get him one-to-one, face-to-face, um, but incredibly shy, and that just makes him more endearing. Um, and he, the way he goes about things, he, he keeps it all for the bike. And what does he keep on the bike? I mean, his rivals may have complained about a few overtakes here and there, but when people do it to him, he's he's not really bothered. He expects it. It's part of the way he trains. It's, his riding style is down to the way he trains and who trained him. It's his own way of doing it. I was lucky enough to speak to Keenan in the Yamaha box uh, right after the ceremony for winning the championship um, and asked him lots of questions about, you know, about top rack. And he said, look, the reason he does this, he's been through all the analysis of it, of why the guy is so fast, can break so late. Um, He is a one-off. The way he does it is not the way you're supposed to do it anymore. You know, the way he rides is the wrong way. But look at what he's doing with it. He's winning out of the park. And Gordon, one of the most interesting things that, that I heard from Top Rack at the weekend was whenever he was asked about going so fast in free practice one, because I think he had like a second and a half in hand on everyone else. He was putting moves on everyone on his outlap. And he said that when he goes training with uh, Keenan and the Onchus and Bat and Safoglu, they go out and they have to clean the track the first day of running every week. And it's just, you have to go absolutely flat out at all times ride really aggressively otherwise the track just doesn't rubber in so they have to ride like that right from the outset and this was one of his big advantages on the opening day here yes i mean he he, he trains in relatively uh modest circumstances at, at keenan's private track which is small and gnarly and everything else and when it doesn't get used because they're all the way racing and they come back it's absolutely filthy um because it's not used by anything or anybody else 
Yes, and he said exactly the same thing. It's part of the way he does it. Um, they, they, they just, but because it's all their time is valuable and every lap counts, and they're all so competitive with each other, they just go at it from the start. So all those front lockups and back end uh, spins to him are what you should be doing on a first lap. But yeah, I mean that that performance as soon as he went to a racetrack, he had never like everyone else ridden on before at all, and just went completely flat out. Those are the things that start separating people off. Don't forget what Toprak did this year. He beat the guy who's been six times world champion. And the main reason why him and Kawasaki have been six-time world champions, even his own team will tell you, is Jonathan. Whenever things haven't quite worked out, Jonathan's always been able to find out, find something to, to take him another level. Well, Toprak's got a bike that's working really well. And he's just pushing it to the absolute level and limit every single time he gets on it, whether it's a first practice or whether it's a race. And that's what he needed to do this year to be world champion because he had to beat Jonathan and he had to overcome all those three DNFs, which, you know, it's a big big total for a champion to have three DNFs. Yeah, and one of the big things this year was we saw Top Rack, he, he beat Johnny at his own game. He was more consistent than him all the way through the season, didn't make any mistakes free practice qualifying and races I can't think of Top Rack actually crashing from his mistake I can think obviously of Assen and Portimao but I can't think of anything else where Top Rack actually put it on the ground by his own accord no I mean he's run wide he's, he's, he's had to recover he's sometimes run wide multiple times in races and still came through to either win or podium he didn't have the greatest start his first two races weren't that great the first two rounds weren't that great but he, he made up for it you know really significantly do you know what I would say about that though? Aragon was one of those weekends where I actually thought he made a massive step and it was after Aragon that I thought like, you know what, Toprak can really do something this year because in the wet conditions he was on the intermediate tyres, he was competitive. Aragon's always been the worst track in the calendar for him. He had a podium in race one and then we went to Estoril and he obviously had uh, two po- I th- I don't know, three podiums in Estoril. He finished second in uh, in race one and the Super Bowl race and I think he was third in race two so you know he was he was really impressive at a track where we expected him to go well you know Estoril last year Yamaha were really competitive but at this stage you know Jonathan Ray was being Jonathan Ray he opened the season really strong but from that point onwards we started to see Toprak really assert himself and we saw that he could do things that other riders couldn't seem to do this year and that's where, for me this season, Toprak reminded me an awful lot of Mark Marquez because there was times, you know, five years ago where Marquez was doing things that other MotoGP riders just could not do. Toprak, you know it's inevitable. You know he's attacking you on the brakes. You can't defend against it. Yes, I mean, it's, it is, uh, when, when, if we're only talking about the rider, then absolutely, yes, absolutely. But you have to have the bike underneath you to do it, and that's what Toprak had this year as well. Both those things took a jump. The Yamaha has been incremental, but for some reason, Toprak this year, psychologically, talent-wise, bike control-wise, whether it's approach, training, whatever he's done, has allowed him, and desire to win, obviously, which is the huge thing with racers that we it's obvious, but we seem to forget about it sometimes. His desire to win is gigantic, but race by race by race, he doesn't really think strategically. I think the guys behind him in the pit box are also thinking strategically, but not him. Um, I think that's absolutely genuine. Um, and again, even the bad luck he had at Assen, everybody was saying that that was a turning point for him personally. All the guys in the team said he was already to say, no, 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 we're done. And the team brought him back and said, look, no, no, just go for it. Let's just go for it. So he went away, came back and said, okay, I'll just win every race. 
and that's how he ended up winning the championship. But package, we have to we have to say that that I think Johnny's package wasn't as good as Toprak's this year. Every round, all the time, he'd obviously things he was having to override and so on. Um, whether that would have made any difference to the championship or not, I doubt it because obviously Toprak had three things that went wrong for him that were completely not his fault, and he would have got really serious results if those things hadn't happened to him. So he might have won the championship even more. Um, and let's not forget, Johnny was only 13 points behind at the end of the championship. So that's why another reason why this year's championship was fantastic, because it really did have to go to the last races. And look at Reading. Despite all the bad luck Reading had, it was actually a three-way, two-plus-one championship fight this year, I think. You know? Yeah, because I, I was just going to say, like you think to, to Reading in particular and... Mizano was really tough. Donington gave up so much points those two weekends. He finished the season, what, 63 points behind top rack. He's going to look at it and think, fuck, I had a chance this year. Johnny's going to look at it and say, fuck, if I didn't crash in Portimao, I would have had a chance. Top rack's going to look at it and say, you know what, the points gap flatters how I was this season. All of those guys left points on the board. And it was a great season because we had one rider from three different manufacturers, all really competitive all the way through the season. We had three world-class riders battling it out for three steps on the podium more often than not. And when one of them faltered, we had Locatelli as a rookie coming in and impressing. We had Rinaldi on a couple of occasions looking really strong. We had Garrett Gerloff at the start of the year really impressing those first three or four rounds before Aston. We had Vandermark and BMW able to take advantage of wet conditions. Lowe's looked fast on the Kawasaki. Just every time he crashed, he seemed to pick up a new injury. We had Chaz Davis at the start of the season actually looked like, you know, this could be a really good season for him. Didn't quite pan out. But there was storylines left, right and centre this year. Oh, unbelievable. I think we had 13 podium striders, if memory serves. I should know. I've just written all this stuff, but I've, as soon as I've written it, I've finished it. Um, I mean, we had Bassani. Look at Bassani coming through and giving everybody... I mean, you know, at the end of the season, that guy's just there on a totally private bike. That's not even Chaz's bike, you know. Um, Chaz got on a podium. It, it, it's been a fantastic year. And we're all remembering and looking at the big headline at top right. And why not? And the guy totally deserves it, what he's done. Yamaha deserves it for what they've done. Um, but that is by no means the story. The, the only story is the headline and the big story. But beneath it, it's just good times for World Superbike. And it's just been great. Yeah, Gordo, that's even before we think about Honda actually showed something at times this year with Bautista, especially at the end of the season. You, know, you look to, to next year and it's impossible not to be excited because for Jonathan Ray, 2022 started at around about, you know, 12 o'clock on Sunday in Indonesia. Once once the championship was lost, that was it. He was moving on to the next target. Kawasaki are going testing in December in Hareth, uh, and you've got Ducati have already been out on track. BMW have new riders with Scott Redden jumping onto that bike for next year. Honda have an all-new lineup. All of them are going to be testing in December. Yamaha aren't. So they're all going to be looking to say, well, we've got three days to make up a bit of progress. And then we kick off next year where everyone really gets into it. But you know, we've spent the last, well, I'm, I'm in the World Superbike paddock six years. And we spent the last six years talking about how many interesting things there are in the Superbike paddock. It's great that outside of the paddock, people are now seeing that as well. Yes, and there are more different things. There is more competitiveness across the board to, to look at than there were before. 
Um, we've always had big beasts in the World Superbike, even in the years when Johnny's dominated, he's had to fight for it in lots of races with other people. But it's feel good times because there's all those five manufacturers are absolutely in there, completely in for it. They 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 are committed to it all, despite MotoGP going off and doing its its gigantic global thing. Um, it's it's been some of the best periods I remember because remember a lot of times when you look back at the golden era you'd realise that oh, although somebody, this guy won seven races, that guy won seven races, but when they did win, sometimes they won by 12 seconds in those days. Sometimes it was a tyre win when the first four guys were all on, for example, Michelin's. And you'd maybe go to another track and all the Michelin guys struggled and all the guys won on Dunlops. So a lot of the comp- a lot of the interest was actually, how could I say, artificial or external influences. Now, it's everybody's there with competitive bikes. The rules are good. They've all got top riders that can win races. And I think next year probably could be even more tight, partly because of what you said about Yamaha. They've already got their good bike. Unless they bring a new one, they can't make it any better. So now everybody knows what the target is, which is Yamaha. One of the most interesting things for me, Gordo, was Sunday night, Yamaha's won the championship. Crescent have won their first world championship. Paul Denning's a very emotional guy at the best of times. But on Sunday night, the first thing he said to me was, he was so appreciative of the FIM, Scott Smart, Dorna, for the work to actually give stability to the regulations. Yamaha has made incremental changes year on year for the last five, six years. And they've been able to see the rewards for that. There hasn't been, you know, massive sea change regulations in World SBK. It's just been up to everyone to make their little steps. And I thought it was really interesting that on the day when, you know, the biggest day for his team that they've ever had, he was able to look at the big picture and say, you know what, we got a really good next few years as well. And I think that's what I'm most excited about. And you look at Supersport as well for next year, and the same thing's going to happen in the next few years with lots more manufacturers coming in. That championship actually was really strong this year, but you'd expect it's going to be even better going forward. Yeah, I don't see any reason why next year's not going to be even more competitive. Um, I think it's... uh... I'm excited by the rider changes. I've got no idea whether Honda's experimenting the two new riders from the MotoGP part is going to work or not. But hey, they obviously mean business. They think it's going to work, which, you know, I at the beginning I thought, what are they doing? You know, maybe they're just doing that because they have to fill another year. And I, I mean, it didn't make sense. Now you realise, now you've spoken to them behind the scenes, you go, okay, fair enough. I get it, why they're doing it. And who knows, those guys could turn up and just because of the new and say, let's go. That's just one manufacturer. You look at all the rest of them. It's nothing but excitement. Bautista was like a child in a, a sweet shop yesterday when he got on his Ducati for the first time. He sees what he did in the past. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, was talking about it on Sunday and understands exactly where they think they went wrong. And that bike's still capable of winning races and getting podiums for almost anybody that gets on it. If they can make that consistent, then why is he not going to be a potential world champion next year? Ronaldo won three races this year. On the Ducati. Three. And he was nowhere near chasing the championship fight. You can do that through the whole paddock, all the way. We even saw Mercado in the private Honda shining towards the end of the, the, the year this year. I don't see anything but promise next year. Now, it never works out that everybody's competitive all the time. It just doesn't happen. But I don't see any reason why there can't be even greater competitiveness between the big three beasts, and there was quite a big points gap at the end, to the next lot. But look at Locatelli. Is he going to get worse next year? Doubt it. He'll get better. 
Well, we're going to take an ad break now on the Paddock Pass podcast, but when we come back, we're actually going to look at some of those storylines that Gordo's touched on as well. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And Gordo, you mentioned Alvaro Bautista before the break. He's obviously switched over to Ducati for next year or returned to Ducati for next year. He's been out in the bike already. But let's look at him on the Honda because this began in Argentina, in Indonesia. He looked really strong again, looked like he had good pace, looked like he had made another step. And he's going to leave Honda with a little bit of a feeling that they were on the cusp of making that big progress. Leon Haslam's the same. And the final round's always a round of goodbyes. Chaz Davis, potentially Tom Sykes. You know, this was a real changing of the guard. Yes, yes. I mean, that's that's another thing to, to talk about. It's not just about the bikes to be how competitive next year. Um, but we are seeing three riders, three top riders, probably having their last full seasons. Um, Chaz has said he's off. Tom can't get a ride. And he's basically said he can't be riding next year. If he won't ride next year, his chances are coming back the year after or, or less. Uh, Leon's been away and come back again. Um and and given his age and everything else, that those three really significant riders in this championship, a guy who nearly won the championship uh, against Max Biaggi in 2010, I think. You've got Tom, who is a world champion, although it wasn't yesterday, but Tom's a world champion. And Chaz is one of those riders that in 100 years' time, you look back in the history books and say, another he's a very, very good candidate for a guy who never won the World Superbike Championship, um, but could have. So, but what we're bringing in is, is not just difference, but new. And that's what makes me excited as well. Um, and the younger guys in our paddock that are, are cutting it, don't forget Top Rack, the new world champion, is basically a product of the Superbike World Championship paddock from Stock 600 to Stock 1000 to Superbike. Yes, he was in the Rookies Cup to start with, as virtually every good rider is <laughs> in some kind of Rookies Cup race, whether it's national or everything else. That's where they, they, they go to. Um, so... You know, that's important for World Superbike, as well as bringing talent from elsewhere. It's very important that the championship still keeps growing its own talent and keeping it, at least until such time as it, it wants to go and, and race in MotoGP, which is a natural progression. Um, although it's interesting, Top Rack is not, doesn't seem to be in any hurry, even when he's won the World Championship. I mean, who knows? There could be any kind of surprises for us. He could race six races next year. I don't know what Yamaha want to do with him. And Keenan certainly left the question open when I asked him on Sunday night, what about MotoGP now? We all thought, oh, until he wins the championship, he might not go. He's now won a championship. So when does he go? Because he surely has to go. I'll be honest, Gordo. The, the best question and answer I saw all weekend was when Toprak was asked, are you going to move to that other paddock? And Toprak said, you know, yeah, I'd like to go race and be a speed at some stage. Yeah, it looks yeah, like fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's just, I think people just don't understand that the, his mentality, his culture, everything about it is just not the same as ours. It's just different. It's just different. I, I do always think, Gordon, one of the big things for him is in World SBK, 
there's only a handful of journalists go to every race. You know, it's a very small group. He feels he can trust those people. He knows them. He gets along with them. You go to MotoGP, it's a very different animal. And you've seen that whenever you've been in the GP paddock over the years as well. Totally different pressure cooker for riders, even for journalists. And I think that's one of the things that Top Rack really loves about being in the Superbike paddock. The Superbike paddock is not an easy place to work, but it's a straightforward place to work. That's the biggest thing about it. It's it's a place that you can go and do your business. And that means everybody can uh everybody mucks in, does their job. But there is just less scale. There's fewer numbers of everybody that wants a piece of you. There are so many more journalists that go to MotoGP and want time. So many more media requests, so much more time demanded of you, especially if you're doing well. Um and Top Right Remember has been there. Didn't like it, really didn't like being there, um, and his memories of that are still there. Um, and I've, I've I've seen some amazing things written since then, um, with people who've just got a one track mentality about MotoGP is the biggest thing and nothing else matters. If you were World Superbike, the owner of both MotoGP and World Superbike, and your World Superbike product has been the same rider winning for a long time and therefore not as much outside interest as just from casual fans. And then you've suddenly had one guy reigniting their interest in World Superbike. I'm sure they're selling more video passes and merchandising, and they will do next year. Why is it automatic that TopRack has to go to MotoGP? If he's the guy that's causing all this fantastic interest and so on, maybe somewhere else, when you've got all the other guys in MotoGP who are all capable of winning races, you've got a new world champion over there, You've got all the, the, the massive effort that goes into that and any number of guys could be the next Yuan Mir or Quartararo. Why do you need Sofoglu there? You know, why do you need them there? I always think it's it's one of those situations as well where we just assume that riders want to go to be tested to their limit. We want, We assume that they want to go race the fastest bikes. It's also worth remembering, Superbikes is 13 rounds. Toprak lives in Turkey. He doesn't live in the middle of Europe. So, you know, he has to travel, you know, four hours, five hours, no matter where we're going. MotoGP, you add in an extra eight, nine rounds over the years. You add in the tests where you have to go to far-flung places, down to Indonesia, over to Sepang, Qatar, wherever it is. You know, it's it's a lot more hectic. And I think Toprak, he's, he's just very chilled. And speaking to Phil Marin about it, Phil said... Top Rack only wants to go somewhere where he can win. He doesn't care about going and riding at his best and getting the most out of a bike. He wants to win. And uh, going over to MotoGP and having to spend the time, you know, grinding it out, learning the tyres, progressing your way through the group. You know, you look at Troy Bayless and, and Gordo, you were working in World SBK when Troy went over as a factory Ducati rider to MotoGP when they came back in 2003. And, you know, it wasn't easy for Troy. And it's different to go. It's difficult to go from being that big fish in, in the pond to suddenly just being another fish. Well, I think Bayless, considering how late he started racing and full stop, how his route to being world champion in Superbike wasn't actually particularly straightforward. There were lots of other uh, potential banana skins there. Became a top guy there and went to MotoGP. The trouble is that you're changing everything when you do that. And he had far better first season there than people remember. But this is the this is the other problem that any superbike rider has going there is there's greater expectation on them 
and the indigenous flora and fauna want you to fail, whatever they say in public, they're quite happy when the superbike guy comes and doesn't become the next world champion. They don't like it. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really happen. But ultimately, there's, there is a greater pressure on that person to fail than succeed. I don't care what anybody says. It's all very well in the after event saying how, oh, Bayless lit the place up and all that and what a character he was. Um, but I think he certainly deserved to have a second year. It didn't work out well for any Ducati rider, I think, the second year that Troy was there. He got on a Honda that really didn't suit him, um, far too stiff and everything else, and came back to Superbike. But remember, when Troy went back in a one-off with his own crew, instead of trying to do things somebody else's way, he won the final race of the year at Valencia out of the park. So the lesson for, for, for anybody who wants to go from Superbike to MotoGP is you have to bring stuff that you can race instead of trying to follow someone else's rules. Um, Top Rack's got the talent to win anywhere, I believe. The same as Fogarty before, whatever, right? Ben Spee's obviously had the degree of success. It's very difficult to go from Superbike to MotoGP. Most of the best riders in the world are already there and, and been there since they were kids. So it's going to be hard, but it has to be the right bike, even for Top Rack, or he'll be there a year or two and back again. And that's Yamaha have to be clever enough to understand that. I think they know that very well. He has to go on a real good bike for at least a couple of years. And Gordo, I think that's where he does have one big advantage as well because Phil Marin's already been a crew chief in MotoGP. Phil did two years, one with Bridgestone, one with Michelin, so he knows the bikes, knows the tyres, knows the whole scene in MotoGP. You'd imagine, again, this is where you, you just put your conjecture, where you'd imagine... Phil would want to go with Top Rack. Obviously, he may not. He might just love being in the World SBK paddock. But for Top Rack, it's about having those people around him. And we've seen that over the years where, like, Keenan's gone to every race this year. And, you know, the Turkish group, they go out for dinner every night. They're, they spend a lot of time together. Top Rack, he, he needs to have those people around him. He needs to have a crew. And you, you go to MotoGP and you'd still have Dennis Onchu. You'd in all likelihood, still of Keenan. So he would still have a support career around him. But I think one of the big things that's always worth mentioning with Toprak is Toprak's got no truck to a Yamaha. He's only there two years. He didn't think anything of dropping Kawasaki. Keenan thought nothing of changing manufacturers. Keenan thought nothing of, you look at the, you know, something as simple as leather brands. Keenan chopped and changed them the whole way through his career because he was always chasing what he needed. And I think uh, Toprak could well be down that kind of path as well because in MotoGP, he showed with Yamaha he wasn't going to go on an older spec bike. Maybe that's where someone else comes in and says, I'll tell you what, mate, we'll give you our factory seat. What, was it the right decision And early in the year when the offer was made for Toprak to go to MotoGP in 2022? Was that the right decision? To me, that looks like the right decision to say, actually, no, I'm not doing it. Okay, I'm going to be 25, but I'm not doing it. Because what would have happened then? We've seen all the, the other aspects of what's happened and, and sponsors and so on. Look at what's happened to that the team that he would have been in there. That was the right decision. Maybe they knew all this in the background, whatever they came to the decision for. Leaving Kawasaki, when they were doing what they did, a lot of people went, oof. You know, especially with Vandermark and stuff and Yamaha and already in the, you know, feet under the table and stuff. You know, they've made all, they're not scared to make all these big calls. And as, as of now, all those calls have been correct. All of them. So we'll see where he goes to meet you, you know. I, I always look at it, Gordo, that the top guys, doesn't matter what sport you're looking at, doesn't matter what industry you're looking at, the top guys back themselves. 
they believe that they're going to do a good enough job. Toprak wasn't afraid of going into what had looked like basically becoming Van der Mark's team. And, you know, within, you know, half a season, Van der Mark, you know, with COVID and all the different sets of circumstances, an offer came in from BMW and he was gone. It became Toprak's team. And you look at how he is this year, I think, has been really talented because he's taken Locatelli under his wing. Free practice, Super Bowl sessions. You see them outside by side. You see it in the garage where Toprak goes across to talk to Andrew Pitt and Andrea Locatelli during sessions to be able to get them up to speed. He's not afraid of anyone. He's not afraid of any any rider having a bit more knowledge because he thinks he can just do a better job than them. And it's the exact same with Jonathan Ray as well. He, he's not afraid of Ray. And I think that's where it's really interesting to see those two riders up against each other again next year because Ray made mistakes this year. Kawasaki made mistakes. They've got to figure a way to, you know, do something different next year. It looks like they're not going to have that all new engine next year that they'd hope to bring this year with the extra revs and all these kind of things. You know, so they're going to have the same basic package. Yamaha, they're going to have the same package. You know, Kawasaki's got a lot of ground to make up now. Yeah, if Kawasaki's had that 500, 600 revs that they were testing with in the winter and expected to get this year, uh, that's the great unknown about this season just gone. Um, but as you say, unless something happens that's a big surprise for next year, that's what it's, they're looking at the same kind of idea. So they're going to have to reinvent their own wheels because they're not going to get new wheels unless something's major arms. Um, so it's going to be difficult again. But again, right at the end, 13 points. So they're not that far behind. It's just a case of Jonathan fight, did make mistakes this year under pressure because he's a racer. Because he hasn't had somebody that's been that consistent at the same speed as him or faster that he's had to chase for a whole race. The normal way with Johnny is to race people for half a race and then go. And if he doesn't have the package, that's fine. But this year, he just couldn't do that. He couldn't ride the way he wanted to on the bike. He couldn't do the strategy he wanted to do. And he couldn't use the tactics that have served him so well in the past. And he couldn't, and remember, couldn't use tyres that Top Rack and other people could use. The Kawasaki just couldn't do it this year. There had to be very certain circumstances to allow Jonathan to run at full potential pace. So there was a lot against him this year. Do you know what, Gordo? That was one of the interesting things on, uh, I think it was the first race when we had the, the washout on Saturday. Because I got the tyre sheet from Pirelli and Ray was out there on the X tyre. He was going out in that super soft compound and he was going to try and take that chance. And then he made a decision to change his mind. And I thought it was it was interesting that he felt he had to do something like that. Um, obviously enough, I, I said at the start of this segment, we were going to talk about some of the riders leaving. We ended up veering, as as you know, inevitably you would in a season like this, into Ray versus Razgadioglu. Gordo, before we, we take the next break on the show, let's talk Chaz Davis because... Chaz is a very popular writer, or was a very popular writer inside the world SBK paddock, an absolute legend for Ducati. Regardless of how anyone wants to look at Chaz Davis's career, and you know, there will be some people that say he didn't quite manage to get what he could have gotten out of a superbike. He was up against Jonathan Ray. Ray is the best superbike rider we've ever seen, and Chaz pushed him harder than anyone up until Top Rack. He's won a lot of races, a lot of podiums, super successful for for Ducati. And again, a bit like with Top Rack, whenever I was saying about, you know, Top Rack can do things that other riders couldn't do, Chaz was like that a few years ago. On the brakes, there was no one like him. And he was he was very 
distinctive in his style. He's a world champion in the super sports class. Different roll of the dice. He could have been a superbike world champion as well. But his career, he had to come up the hard way. In the Grand Prix paddock, he had crap bikes. He had, you know, the opportunities that a talented rider should have had, but he should have had them in a better set of circumstances. He had to go and remake his career in America, came into super sports for a few years, and finally, you know, 2015, 2016, he was able to get the rewards for, you know, 10 years of really hard trial and work to be able to get onto a competitive bike. Yeah, his, his career is uh, it's a very interesting story. Obviously, we've all been talking about him, writing about him now that he's, he's announced his retirement. Um, but he is the guy that took the fight to Jonathan more often than anybody else in that era. I personally think his bike was a little too finicky, whether it was the big V-twin or the new V4, as has been proven to be the case since then, that the bike becomes a bit finicky. It's got to be, because look at what Batista did with it in 19 and still ended up losing the championship. So when you look at that perspective, what Chaz did was pretty impressive. And he usually beat Sykes. To, to second place in the championship even when he was still on the, the Kawasaki that he had won the world championship with Chaz is a far better rider than a lot of people give him credit for however there were flaw, flaws I don't know there were imperfections in his makeup qualifying wasn't always great um, he would try too hard because he's such a competitive racer when he had Johnny in his sights and he wouldn't settle for second. He would always try for first and he had a few crashes on the front end. Only those things separated him from Jonathan in the years that Jonathan won six in a row. So he's a much better rider than a lot of people uh, maybe think he is. Um, and and super competitive. True self-belief. Um, and that ended up turning against him, I think, at some stages. I think it actually became a negative at some stages. Um, because he honestly thought he should be beating Jonathan and it didn't, it maybe got to him a bit very complex character Chaz a very co- lovely guy, but very complex person. Well let's go to another complex person then as well, Tom Sykes because Gordo I know you, you've seen Tom at his absolute best whenever a World SBK bike was a lot more similar to a MotoGP bike and that allowed to, uh, Tom to really get the most out of his style it's been a long time, though, since we were really able to see that. I thought this year he actually rode better than he has for a long time because he still qualified well. You know, the BMW, it wasn't capable of pole positions or a string of them. You know, he obviously had his pole position in Catalonia, front row in Donington. But other than that, it was it was a second row bike. Tom was able to get second row on it. Well, let's be honest, probably a third row bike, he was able to get second row. And then he kind of would fall in the races, but not to the same extent that he had in the past. He was able to manage the race an awful lot better, but obviously, you know, not quite able to to get the same performance out of it that he would have expected or that he had done in the past. But if this is the end of Tom Sykes and World SBK, he's been a special rider for the championship. You look at, what, over 50 pole positions. I mean, he's a legend. He's one of those, he's like Troy Corsa. Troy Corsa won two world championships. Could have won five if he'd have been able to change his riding style to handle tyre wear. Um, ultimately, the fastest guy on the track is usually Tom Sykes, lots of times. Okay, maybe not now, but in the, the beginning, he was just the fastest guy. And the, the most interesting thing about Tom is because of his mad riding style, is ultimately the more extreme bike you give him, the more power, the more difficult it is to handle, the more he likes it. Other riders want to soften things off and, and go a bit easier. The trouble is when you ride like that and you want a more extreme bike, you have to have tyres that go from lap 1 to lap 21. Perfect. And I set up to go with it. 
And when you do, Tom was as fast as anybody. That's why he won one World Championship and could have won three. I mean, he was half a point off one and I think six points off another one. I'll, I, but that was a while ago and everything comes to an end and maybe it's just Tom's time now to finish. But I, again, end of the day, we're talking about Chaz, but Tom Sykes is a world champion in Superbike and was a dominant force for three years, more or less. Gordo, where do you see Tom going next year? My understanding is that he's got offers in AMA. Uh, sorry, Motor America. Sorry, I'm, I'm a dinosaur. I keep saying AMA when I mean Motor, G- Motor America. Um, I, I understand he's got an offer there and he's got an offer in the UK. But Tom's his own manager, so it's difficult to know. He, there's nobody to talk about things around. He, 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 he doesn't really give an awful lot away about what he's trying to do, unless it's off the record and you can't say anything about it. But yeah, I think he's got a BSB option and I think he's got uh, an American option. Where where he goes, I don't know. I mean, he's got two young kids and he likes to spend time with them, so maybe he doesn't want to go in America. But if he can fly in and out and, and handle that um, and find a way around it family-wise, then he might go to, want to go there. And he loves America. Man, he loves being there. He, he was the happiest one of them that went to, to go to America. He just loved it, all the cars and the lifestyle and yeehaw and his head off. He, he loved the place. So that's possible. Um, and BSB is where he knows... Um, whether you can go back after years of racing in world championship level tracks to some of the more gnarly places in the UK, who knows? But in the day, he's a Yorkshireman. You know, he's he's tough little guy. Yeah, his options all seem to be centred around Ducati options in the domestic championships. So it'd be interesting to see because there is a lot of rumours about someone else also that's uh, left the world stage being in play for that Ducati seat in America. So... I think everything I've heard has been pretty much that he could be in BSB on a PBM Ducati, which I think would be class. Like, who wouldn't want to see that? You want to see world-class riders going to race in a championship like that. Leon Haslam's going to be there next year as well, it looks like, on a Kawasaki. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, if Leon was put on the truth serum, the last three years were added time for him in world in world championship action because he went back to BSB for, what was it, two or three years, raced there, won a championship, and just the way that everything fell into place, managed to get back on a Kawasaki, on a KRT bike in World SBK for a year alongside Jonathan Ray, and then the last two years on Honda. But it's going to be good to see him in BSB, and it looks like World Endurance next year. So Leon's always going to be busy riding, and uh, he's going to be double jobbing at times next year. Yeah, and he's, he seems to be looking forward to it. I think it's a, there's a degree... I spoke to him um, when it was obvious he wasn't going to ride in his own pit box. Um, and he seemed quite relieved. I mean, I think he wanted to go out with a bang, but when it was obviously wasn't, he'd already started his journey to what he was going to be doing next. Um, and Leon's just racing's pumping through his veins. He's you know you'll be racing when he's a hundred. Um, it's just the way the nature of the guy. He could do anything anywhere. He's obviously shown what he can do at Suzuka. If you can extrapolate that out to the longer races, then there's no reason why he can't. Um, he's always tried a bit too hard, Leon. He's always been a bit of a charger. Uh, despite being a real scholar of the, the, the art um, that seems to be part of the issue um, and tr- think all he does is think about making his motorbike go faster and then trying to go out and make it go faster but wherever he goes he's got a future and he, he has shown that he can go to World Championship go back and win BSB so to me he might be the best guy that you, that you think well he's probably going to handle next season back in BSB better than anybody else that might go back there Um and his talent's huge. The guy's got so much talent and experience. Uh, he's been unlucky. He does get hurt, everything else. But he, he's a class act. I always think it's it's easy to forget 
the you know we're used to seeing riders racing in world superbikes or or whatever championship it is but leon was on a, a factory grand prix bike 21 years ago in the 125 class you know obviously having the haslam name is always going to help a little bit at the start of your career but it opens doors that you have to keep open and you think back to 2001 his second year in the grand prix paddock he was put on to a shell advance 500 you know like that those things don't happen unless you've got that talent and uh, that's where it's gonna be interesting to see what happens for him next year in the in in the bsb paddock i'm really excited to see how he readapts to that class and uh, how he does because it's obviously like you said Gord, a very different style of race and very different tracks and um, a very different structure for the championship as well and that's where Scott Redding was really good because he knew the Grand Prix style tracks at the end of the season were going to suit him I think it was Donington and Assen and Brands Hatch GP so he knew they were going to suit him tell you what the last time Tom Sykes was at Brands Hatch he did the triple so he's going to feel pretty good about uh, being back in BSB as well, you'd imagine. And I'm excited to see how he goes in it. We're going to take another break on the Paddock Pass podcast. When we come back, we're going to just have another quick look at uh, some of the big talking points from Indonesia and the final round of the year. And then a quick look ahead to next year as well with the release of the new calendar. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And Gordo, I was just saying that we're going to look a little bit to next year because you mentioned it earlier on. Andrea Locatelli, Axel Bassani, two rookies that came in this year. There was no pressure on them when we started the season. There was no expectation. You think back to this time last year when Locatelli was announced as replacing Van der Mark at Paddy Yamaha. The big talk was, how is it not Garrett Gerloff? There's no one asking that question now about Locatelli. But next year is going to be really interesting. And I'm grouping him with Bassani on this because both of them have to kick on next year. And that's going to be a big challenge because especially for Locatelli, with what he was able to do to finish fourth in the championship this year, it surpassed expectations by such a degree that it's going to be really difficult for him. But you'd expect him to be able to win races next year, even if you know his overall championship position or one thing or the other maybe doesn't quite live up to what he did this year. He has to win races next year because it's the only thing he was missing this year, really. Um, he's up against the three big beasts in the championship when you've got Razgat, Leogor, Ray and Redding. And he's a guy that finished on top of the rest of them in his first year. Now, OK, he was an amazing super sport champion. That doesn't always translate. There's a list of people that haven't quite made it, even though they were brilliant 600 riders. Um, he has to win races next year. If I was Yamaha, what I'd want out of him is ideally repeat his championship position um, and take any advantage if anybody else slips up. But I would want three, four, five race wins out of him next year, even with top right there. I would want him to be finishing second to top right 10 times. You know, to really prove how good the Yamaha is and so on. If I were Mr. Yamaha, that's what I'd be expecting of the guy. What the good thing is that what Locke expects out of himself is is at least that. He he is one of those guys who's just driven. Truly driven. I have to say, Gordo, I'm really excited to see the Locke versus Gorloff battle next year because 
you know, Garrett Garloff was clearly incredibly gun-shy the second half of this year. He wasn't anything like the rider we saw the second half of last year and the start of this season. You know, how much of that came down to just, he was clearly given an absolute bollocking after Assen by internal within Yamaha and that just knocked him for six. But now he's got a winter to regroup. Everyone wants to see him do well. You know, I think there were times this year where Garrett clearly felt the world was against him. And I don't think that was the case at all. But I think over the winter, he's got a chance to regroup, rebuild himself, and get into next season. You put him into the mix as well. That makes it more difficult for Locatelli. You put, you know, Rinaldi obviously finished fifth in the championship this year. You know, he's going to be back with Ducati next year. Bautista's going to, in all likelihood, do what Scott Redding's been doing, being right at the front of the field. You put a fully fit Alex Lowe's in there. You put Vandermark and, and Scott Redding on the BMW you know, it's going to be tough next year. I think your target of finishing second to top rack 10 times and, and winning four or five races, I, th- I think that's a, a very high watermark you're setting for him. The Yamaha is clearly the best bike out of all those things and probably will be at the start of next year as well. Unless Ducati get the bike to finally behave itself every single racetrack all the time. Um, but the Yamaha is clearly working for everybody that goes anywhere near it. Um, in all areas, there's no weak points and stuff. That's what has to be exploited. So yes, it is a, a, a big ass, but he's on a factory Yamaha that won a championship this year. Why not? Um, the thing about Ducati, the thing about Ronaldo, so let's go through them. There's Locker's challenge. Look at Ronaldo, won races this year, inconsistent, finished the season with a cash. Um, you know, it, it was it was ups and downs for Ronaldo. The ups are very high and the downs are a little bit lower than he expected to have. What he expected out of this year was consistency. But let's look at the Ducati. They've got Alvaro. They've got Ronaldo. What's the common element to those two guys? They're both little blokes. And everybody, when Bautista, or the Ducati guy said, when Bautista was running away with the championship in 19, this is a lot to do with Alvaro. He's riding confidence, everything else. And he's very small. And that helps the bike accelerate like crazy. So he could put brakes on people. Um, obviously, the other people have caught up a bit, etc. But with two little riders, your direction and development goes in one way. Two years ago, two big Ducati riders. This year, one big one, one small one. Next year, two little ones. Better off in racing, two little ones than two big ones. Opposite to football. Except for except for Gordo on a podcast. You, you do want two, want two big ones on a podcast, podcast, obviously, because there's no weight penalty. Um, but ultimately, you look at football and everybody will say, I'd really have a, a really, equally two equitalent players, I'd rather have the tall one. You'll rather have a big big player that can play really well than a little one. And racing is the opposite. You want to be Kenny Roberts. You want to be Rinaldi in terms of size. You know, even on a modern day road bike, these bike things still fit the little guys. And look at what Batista did in 19. So you you take him, then you look at Bassani, who's in the middle. But man, he's just, nobody's told him he can't do it. And he's just saying, you know what, I'm going to beat these guys. I'll have a go. I never got to Argentina, the first race I've missed in a million years. And But see, watching that on telly, the whole story for that was me, was, okay, the full story was the championship and, and the, the big three, but watching Bassani, I just thought, man, this is great. You know, this is fantastic. Gordo, I, I, I'm going to have to jump in. Were you watching on telly or were you watching on the watch video I can't watch on pass? telly. I've only got a cheap, I'm so cheap, I don't have like mega satellite dishes and stuff. Although that's not true because I spent a lot of money and then realised we couldn't do it because of the hill behind my house. <laughs> When we moved here 20 years ago, that was embarrassing. We spent all this money and it was like, eh, it's not working. Um, so yeah, I watched it on the video pass. I watched it on the... Which I'm glad worked. If that didn't work, I was in deep trouble. I was going to have to phone some of my mates and 
go in the go to their houses and watch it, you know. Um, but no, it was fantastic. I mean, Bassani's just lit the season up. He showed flashes there in the year. Uh, you know, look at that story. A few a few things I really liked about Bassani. Obviously, the Catalonia podium was the highlight for the season. But I loved the fact that his 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 bonus for the podium, like, they clearly didn't have anything written in the contract from from what I understand. And Ducati just said, well, look, we'll give you some money or we'll give you a V4R to use as a track bike. And he was there, I'll take the track bike. And, uh, you know, he's one of those riders that wants to improve. And that's where next season is going to be really interesting because, you know, in Supersport, we saw it in, in the European Supersport class. He was a Pichetti rider. There was him and uh, Alessandro Zaccone were teammates. I think it was 2016 or 2017. And they were blindingly fast, but both of them kept making mistakes at the worst time possible. They'd have a crash in the Super Bowl session. We never really saw what they could do. Bassani this year, you know, he shows what a Ducati can do as well. And he shows that, you know, all the Ducati riders get good support in their pit box. So if you get all your ducks in a row, you can do a really good job in the Ducati. He did that this year. And next year, it's about kicking on and being able to challenge a bit more. Because in Argentina, again, or sorry, in, uh, that's the second time I've done that. In Indonesia at the weekend, we saw that he was in podium contention. And then Toprak, Bassani and Van der Mark have a little bit of a moment into the last corner. And Bassani's the odd man out. It was just bad luck as much as anything else. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I, ultimately, that all started because um, Toprak had a bit of an odd line. I think he was having some issues, electrical issues with the wet. Um, which is why another reason he couldn't really get on a bit. Um, but the, he went in a bit of a funny line, and that meant all three riders ended up going for the same piece of tarmac in the way out. And Bassani was the only one to get unlucky and get knocked off. A very uh, interesting semaphore he was using to down the, when we saw him on TV afterwards. He was making some signals, shall we say, to the departing riders, <laughs> not being very happy about it, which just made you love the guy even more. Um, you know, it's about he's probably told not to do those things, but when it happens at the time, it, it couldn't be helped. Um, so yeah, just unlucky. But did did you think any less of him because he never scored any points in the last race? No, you thought, wow, well, what a guy, you know. No, you don't. You don't remember any of those things after the fact. You remember he was in the battle. Toprak actually had a problem with his uh, auto blipper, so that just stopped working during the race. So Toprak had to blip the throttle himself, and it yeah, we assume it was because of the rain. So yeah. Yeah, it was it was quite the deluge in fairness. So Toprak had to adjust on the fly, which was which was quite interesting to see as well. Um, Gordo, before we finish up, we mentioned earlier on as well some of the other riders coming in next year. Obviously Honda with big changes, three Grand Prix riders coming in for next year, two of them with MotoGP experience, Ikerdak Wona and Hafi Siren. Siren going to the MIE team alongside Taddy Mercado. I'm, I'm delighted Taddy's been kept on because I thought the second half this year he made loads of progress. And obviously, Javi Vierge coming in as well on the other Honda. It's going to be interesting to see how they adapt. And Leon Camier was quite interesting about it at the weekend because I asked Camier, you know, as a rider, what do you think about the challenge they're going to face? And Camier just incredibly matter-of-factly says, you know what, if you're a good rider, you can adapt. They've got to adapt, you know, and, and you know, a bike is a bike. And it's going to be interesting to see if Honda still think a bike is a bike by the time we get to the 9th of April and we're lining up for race one in, in Aragon. Yeah, the big enigma wrapped up in a riddle shrouded in mystery. I mean, the Honda thing just should be better by now. It's so in the signs, but that's another gamble they're going to take next year. And it might be the right gamble. But that bike is incredibly conventional and incredibly special all at the same time. They're built across the frame four 
But all the technology inside, the way it's finished, the way things are designed, is very, very Grand Prix influenced. But in a totally different way from Honda doing Grand Prix, I think everybody was slightly surprised they didn't get a V4. And maybe they should have. And maybe they would be more competitive early. Maybe in a mega, mega strategic level, right up the top of Honda, somebody was sitting there going, maybe change them. Maybe we should have went the other way. But being Honda, they want to do something different. That difference being continuing the line of the Fireblade, which they've never had. You know, seldom, let's say. Seldom had big success at World Superbike level with. It was usually the V-Twins and the V-4s. Yeah, Toesland, etc. But that was an odd year again. You know, that was the last year of the road bike turned into a race bike, as opposed to things being more designed to be on the track again, like they were in the, the early days of Superbike. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an odd one. The whole Honda situation is an odd one. But hopefully, there isn't a single paddock, person in the paddock that doesn't want them to be successful. I want to see five different bikes on the top steps five times. You know what I mean? I, I, I want every race to be you know, all those manufacturers not in the top 10, in the top 5. That is a healthy sign for a championship. I'll be honest, Gordo, there's no favourites in the commentary box or the media centre or, or, or anything like that, but I'd love to see Leon Camier able to go up and finally get a winner's trophy. It might be for a manufacturer rather than as a rider, but I'd love to see it because he's put in the Man, work. The guy, he, he's just one of those riders that got unlucky. He was just always in the wrong place at the, the wrong time and the rider saddles got swapped round. He was a teammate of Max Biaggi, which is a very, very difficult thing to be in when he first came over as a, the, the most mega BSB champion had ever been. Um, on a bike that was built for Biaggi, and, he, you know, and he's, he's eight feet tall, Leon. Um, it's, you've got to be on certain bikes um, and you look at what he did with all those bikes when he did get chances on, on bikes that were half good, he was better than the bike wearers a lot of times, but he never quite got to win, so yes, we'd love to see it like De Rosa and Supersport, everybody was jumping up and down with, with glee for De Rosa winning a Supersport race why? I mean, we don't have favourites not for any reason, but for, as a human story, you've got to be pleased for a guy that's won, what, what was it, 87 or something, 89, 80, how many races did he do? And a, a million podiums, and it and it was always something that it was always a bad luck thing that right at the end, you know, something had happened right at the end. So yeah, we'd love to see big man standing up there, proud and tall. Do you know what I would say about Rafa as well? I think he's a good example of another rider that it's easy to forget. He had lots of opportunities in his career. There's a reason he was a, a one two five, a two fifty Grand Prix rider. You know, I think he did Moto two as well. Obviously, being on a super bike, a lot of success on a stock thousand bike, and finally able to win that super sport race. So it was great to see. Gordo, I mentioned that we've obviously got a new calendar just being uh, announced, and uh, it's it's a good calendar as well. I, I like the fact that like there, there was obviously you know a, a bit of uncertainty about what was going to happen next year but i like the fact that we've got no back-to-backs in europe that's a massive thing after you know the triple header at the end of this season all those things have happened for reasons in the last two years but it's great that we don't have it because if you think to the triple header this year we had Chaz davis got injured in catalonia alex lowe's got injured in catalonia we had i think myas was injured in, in those rounds as well we had a lot of riders that ended up really having a big negative impact on the rest of their season because in the first couple of races of a triple header, they got injured. And then we went to Jerez and Portimao. We didn't get to see the best from those guys. We obviously went to Argentina. Chaz still wasn't able to be at full fitness by the time we went to Argentina. He came back, but it was only in Indonesia that he actually felt fit. You know, I, I always think it's easy to forget 
the difference between being hurt and being injured. And if you're hurt, you manage to strap it up, shoot yourself up and get yourself out in the race. If you're injured, you can't do that. All of these guys want to be out and race as much as possible. The new calendar is going to help that. Yes, and it's it's good that we're going to a lot of the tracks that we are going to. Um, there's still quite a lot of races in Spain. That's fine. We're not going to Navarra because I think maybe, the, I don't know the real background reasons for that, but I think there was an expe- expectation that we would. But I think the reality of... Uh, what they would need to spend and so on to get it up to stage. But the gap between all the races is good. It means that people who work there get a life. If they've got families, they can see them every second weekend. This is important for human beings who don't want to burn out. I know it's different in MotoGP and very different in Formula 1. But, you know, there's a lot of people will be happy to see that. As you say, the in- the recovery from injury, the tra- even just the transportation stuff. You know, this this last two years has been a miracle of logistics from the organisers and fair dues to them. It's easy to criticise the organisers when they get things wrong, but they did an amazing job. If you'd have told everybody in the paddock that we went to, we would go to both Argentina and Indonesia, even a month before we went to Argentina, all the wise old heads are going, yeah, it never happened. It's a, yeah, it's a dream. And what it happened, they were determined to make it happen. And that's fantastic. And what that's done is give us the, the possibility or the certainty for next year that we're going to have those two races back in the calendar. If we didn't go there this year, you know, Argentina might have just decided, you know what, we're just going to go out to try and get MotoGP in the future, whatever. So there's continuation in the, in the calendar this year as well as the, the separation of the races, which is a good thing, as you say, Steve. Yeah, I thought one of the most interesting things about Argentina was in the build-up to Argentina. Obviously, Gordo, that was the first race you've missed in, in you know, a really long years. time. But it, 23 years. There you go. You know, like it was it was different not having you in the paddock, put it that way, Gordo. But, but it was one of those situations, Gordo. Obviously, the UK had Argentina on the red list until, what, 48 hours before I flew out to Argentina. So it was just too late in the day for you. I thought it was really interesting to see how people reacted in the build-up to Argentina about how nervous they were about traveling. This was going to be a really, you know, a nightmare trip. You know, we're going to have to mask on. You're going to do this, that, and the other. And I remember I was chatting to someone. I said, look, traveling to Argentina is always shit from Europe. What's changed? Nothing's changed. You have to wear a mask. You know, it, it's, a, it's a full day of traveling. So just get on with it. And by the time we went to Indonesia and we had two days of quarantine or three, three days of quarantine and two nights of quarantine, like no one was complaining and it was amazing just the the light switch change for everyone just by having one fly away and that's where you know next season Phillip Island's back on the calendar looks like we said earlier on Gordo it's going to be at the end of the season as well so we're effectively into you know a MotoGP date for Phillip Island so it's not quite going to be the same as it usually is for us heading down to you know 30 degrees and uh, the Aussie sun but uh, you know it's going to be interesting to see how it is if Phillip Island is the last race of the year how cool is that as well, Gordo? Because you go to a race where it's an absolute lottery who's going to be able to get the most out of it. Could you imagine a championship decider like we had this year in Phillip Island? You know, look at the race we had in PI last year. Unbelievable. You know, we've, we've got one question mark left on the calendar, one t- to be announced round. The rumor was potentially Turkey. You know, top rack success means that Turkey has to be in play. There is no one in the paddock that wouldn't want to go back to Turkey. I know you've been there, Gordo, for the races in the past when it was King Keenan. I think the race against Sam Lowe's is one of the most significant and uh, 
you know, just the the atmosphere that we saw that day was was unlike anything we saw in the Supersport class in the past. You know, can you imagine Toprak rolling down to the starting grid with a number one plate for race one? You put in the Supersport class. Chan Onshu looks really strong. Bahadins Afoglu stepping up for next year on an MV Augusta. Like it. I just hope we go to Turkey, and and I've got no insider information about that, but it'll be it'd be something else. Well, let's take it what you you spoke about in Australia. Finishing the season there is going to be cool because everybody will be able to, hopefully everybody will be able to go for a wee break afterwards in Australia or work their way back through Asia back home. So that'll be cool for the paddock to at the end get a reward if you like at the, at the end of the year. The racing should be immense at Phillip Islands and tyres will come into it a lot, so there's plenty of potential for last lap dramas and so on, last few lap dramas. What an awesome racetrack to finish on. It's heartbreaking not to go to Australia in February because you leave Europe which is the weather's terrible, everybody's freezing, and you start on one of the best tracks that you could ever imagine in a country that clearly still loves Superbike, even though it's MotoGP mad and it's got Jack Muller and everything else, and there's no Aussies uh, leading from the front in Superbike. They still love it. Um, and it's important and special that they start first. It's a, it's a very big deal. So it's a shame we're not doing that. And we do start a bit later than we ideally. But finishing there is going to be awesome. Um, I think... Ultimately, going to Turkey would be watching that happen. The reigning world champion racing in Turkey is something that we're all going to want to see before we shuffle off. Because watching Keenan in the set, and remember, not in the superbike division, in the super sport division, was one of those things you'll never ever forget. It was truly earth shaking. The noise that the, the fans made every time he passed Lowe's, and the noise that the fans made when he made a massive recovery near the end and overtook him. It wasn't a noise. It was a. It was like somebody let something off in the stands. It was just unbelievable. It was like all the air got sucked out of the room and then came pushing back in again. It was a, The noise was indescribable. The atmosphere was incredible. And it's a brilliant, brilliant... It's a brilliant, brilliant racetrack. It is an amazing racetrack. And one of the world's mega cities... So why wouldn't we want to go there? And I think one of the things that's really cool about it as well is that uh, obviously there, there's no announcement on, on potential dates for it, but I was chatting to some of the truck drivers about how they did it last time. And what was quite cool was they basically went from Italy across to Turkey, put everything onto a boat, sailed everything across, everyone went on their holidays and then flew over to Istanbul, picked up the, picked up the trucks, and uh, that was it. And uh, everyone was ready for the weekend. So it was a flyaway that wasn't a flyaway, which I think is quite cool. Yeah, as well. it's it's so far away from the centre of operations. It has to be thought of as a flyaway. It's outside the EU, which obviously means for lots of uh, paperwork reasons is, is a flyaway. Um, I've been there for the Grand Prix and I've been there for that Superbike race. And it was amazing all in all times. Interesting, not easy, different culture, maddest driving you'll ever see. Um, that's a few years ago. Who knows what's changed now? But it was it was another experience from top to bottom and side to side. And you can get, but you can get there quite easily. You're not mega time zoned out. You're not like Indonesia where you're falling asleep half the time or not sleeping at night. And Australia, which is even more, or America going in a different direction, or Argentina going in a slightly different direction. So I think it would be quite remiss if there's any possibility to do it. That has to happen, even if it costs some people money to put on. 
because that is what what are we going to get for a spectacle? It's going to be unmissable and a brilliant, brilliant racetrack. Yeah, and I think you you said the perfect word there, Gordo, unmissable, because that's what Superbike has been all the way through this season, and uh, you know we've been lucky to be on the inside all the way through the season, and I know that the the Superbike shows on on the Paddock Pass podcast have been really popular this year because lots of good information from you all the way through the season and obviously Gordon we're going to have an end this season show as well for Superbikes hopefully we'll be able to get David and Neil on for that because they've watched all the action through this year and uh, always good to get their insights on it but uh, for our, our last round by round roundup of World SBK I think I'll speak for everyone that listens to the show big thank you to you for joining us all the way through the season Mate it's been a blast I've loved it and what a season we got to talk about it's been a fantastic season uh, I've seen a lot of them and this was right up there absolutely with any of the primo ones from the past and I hope people enjoyed it it's a shame more of them weren't allowed to come trackside and see it that is a shame but considering what they got to see and all angles and a million different cameras and things like this for them to get dig inside all we're trying to do here is bring the paddock outside to people what was it like rather than what they saw on television and I hope that's what people got from me and you rambling away after every round. Um, I hope they got something out of it, a bit of insight and and a bit more love for it. Because this year, World of Superbike has really deserved all the love that came its way. Yeah, and uh, obviously enough for us, it's been uh, a lot of fun just to, to chat about it. And uh, obviously, we get a lot of feedback as well, especially on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast, where you can give us your thoughts on you know races, any questions you have and uh, your thoughts on the season as well so check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast we're still going to have a lot of additional content on that over the course of the winter as well you can drop us a, a tweet at paddock pass pod and uh, other than that from myself steve english from gordon ritchie a big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show and listening all the way through the season to the paddock pass podcast presented by fly racing and Renthal street this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.